Good morning. So, do you keep a scorecard in your relationships? This morning we're going to talk about a guy that had every reason to keep a scorecard. But he chose not to do that. We're going to look at him in just a minute. But before we do that, we're kind of, I want to do a little bit of a review. We're in our final week of kind words are cool. And just to kind of review for a little bit, in James chapter 1, which was where we were the first week, James kind of gave us this disheartening idea that you have to guard your tongue, that you always have to guard your tongue. It's like you never graduate, you never mature to a point in life where you don't have to worry about watching your mouth. He says you have to guard your tongue. And I don't know about you, but over the last month or so, as I've preached this series and God's kind of brought this stuff to my mind, I can't tell you how many times I'd start to say something or I'd already said something and God just kind of like knocked me on the head and say, guard your mouth. So that was week one. Week three, we were also in the book of James and we looked at James chapter one and we looked at where James tells us, be quick to listen and slow to speak. And in a way that doesn't even make sense because how can you be quick to listen? You can't speed up your listening. But he told us, and we understand what he was talking about, you need to listen more and speak a whole lot less. And then in week two, we went into Ephesians chapter four. And over in Ephesians chapter four, we looked at verses 29 and following. And one of the verses we looked at, it says, let not any unwholesome words come out of your mouth. And we talked about how that word unwholesome means like rotting fish. That's what the word originally meant. And so we kind of came up with this term, Fish mouth. We don't need to have fish mouth. There doesn't need to be rotten things coming out of our mouth. And then we looked at a couple other word pictures he had there. One is had to do with construction. And he said you need to build people up with your words, not tear people down. He says we're all children of God, and when you're tearing people down, when you're using sarcasm and passive-aggressive comments and, and ripping people apart, he says, you are tearing down God's children. And God is about building up his children. And then he used a third word picture where he talked about getting rid of all bitterness. And he's talking about the word getting rid of, we talked about this, how it means to take like trash to a curb. And then you set it down, that bitterness, you take it up to the curb, you set it down, the trash truck comes by and gets it, and it's gone forever. He says, that's what you need to do with your bitterness. You need to get rid of it. He says, those things have been bad things that have been spoken about you and to you and over you that have created bitterness in you. He said, you need to get rid of it, and here's why. He talk, we, we, we talked about this. He says, what happens sometimes? You let that bitterness dwell in you. And then through the years, what happens is you take it out on other people that don't deserve it. Maybe your parents weren't the parents they should have been or your first husband wasn't the husband they should have been or whatever. Your, your childhood was taken from you. And so you find yourself, you keep that bitterness in you and then you take it out on the people that don't deserve it, that you don't mean to take it out on. And he said the way to stop that is to get rid of the bitterness. Don't keep it. Get rid of it. And the good news is this. 
if I do the work and you do the work that we need to do to get rid of that bitterness, in God's grace, we can get rid of it. And we can be the hero in our own story, so to speak, because we have the opportunity not to have the bitterness and not to let it destroy relationships like maybe it's hurt us and be the hero in our own story. So this morning, we're going to look at a guy who was able to do that. He didn't keep a scorecard. He didn't let the bitterness build up in him when he very easily could have done that. And the guy I'm talking about is an Old Testament character, somebody that many of you are familiar with, the Old Testament character of Joseph. And we're just going to kind of look at his life this morning and just kind of, I'm not going to read all the text because it starts in chapter 37 and goes all the way through kind of the end of Genesis. We're not going to look at all of that, but I'm going to read some highlights and just look at his story and how he had every opportunity to let bitterness and anger rule the day, and he did not do that. So I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 37. Words will be on the screen behind me, verses 3 and 4. It reads, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had born, been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him or as many of you growing up we called it a coat of many colors when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So Jay, Joseph was this favorite son of a guy by the name of Jacob. Jacob had two wives, and then he had a number of other ladies that he had children with. But his favorite wife was Rachel. And so his favorite son was Joseph. So guys, here's a lesson for us right off the bat. Men never have a favorite wife, okay? <laughs> Don't do that. Or only have one favorite wife, put it that way. So Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And it caused all kinds of problems. Now, besides Joseph, Rachel had another son by the name of Benjamin, and Benjamin was the youngest, and he doesn't play a whole lot into the narrative that we're looking at today. But when Rachel had Benjamin, she, she passed away during childbirth. So you have these two brothers. You have Joseph, and then you have Benjamin. And we read here that because Joseph was the favorite, that his brothers kind of despised him. So one day, Joseph, Jacob sends Joseph out to check on his brothers who are out in the field. And Joseph doesn't want to do that. He hates doing that because he knows his brothers don't like him. And his brothers, they despise him. And you can just kind of sense as, as Joseph is walking out to check on them, when they see him, they're like, oh, here he comes again. Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, God's favorite. Here he is. Wonder what he wants today. And they're kind of like, this is ridiculous. We're tired of Joseph. So they take Joseph and they take that coat of many colors off of him. They throw him into a pit or a cistern. Didn't have any water in it, but apparently he wasn't going to be able to climb out of it either. And then, you know, they decide they're going to kill him. And who wants to kill somebody before you eat, right? I mean, get all messy and smelly and that kind of stuff. So they're like, hey, let's wait till after we eat and then we'll kill our brother, right? So they sit down and they eat, and while they're sitting there eating, they see this caravan of Ishmaelites coming in the distance. And they kind of get this idea, why kill our brother? They're full of compassion, aren't they? Why don't we just sell him into slavery instead? 
And that makes a lot more sense. We can make a little bit of money. So we read in verse 26, same chapter. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. And so that's exactly what they decide to do. So they pull Joseph out of the pit. They probably tie his hands. They sell him to the Ishmaelites who speak multiple languages. It's plural there. Now I want you to think for just a minute if you're Joseph. If we pause for just a second. I think we could feel the terror that he would feel. 17 years old, being sold by your own brothers into slavery. You have no idea what's going to happen to you. You will have no idea what they're going to use you for, where you'll end up. That's what his brothers are doing to him. He goes off with this caravan. The brothers don't ever think they'll see him again. Joseph doesn't ever think he'll see them again. And the text continues up in chapter 39 where it says, Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. So this is where the caravan took him. And Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And here's something that's kind of really strange. And it's the theme that's kind of repeated throughout this story. In the midst of all the chaos and all the things that are going on, the author tells us in verse 2, And the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And what do we think? No, if the Lord was with Joseph, Joseph would be at home with his daddy and his little brother. And his brothers would be sold into slavery. That's what would happen, right? If God was with Joseph, because Joseph hasn't done anything wrong. And his brothers have done this terrible deed. If God is with someone, we think don't good things happen? But that's the theme over and over. And here's the most amazing thing, and this is the first point this morning. I hope you, you get this. Joseph chose to live as a man that God was with. In spite of all the bad things that are going to happen to Joseph, he chose to live as if though God was with him, that God had not abandoned him. He chose to do that. So our story continues. Eventually, the household he's living in, Potiphar, Potiphar notices that Joseph has some great administrative skills. And Joseph kind of keeps pr proving himself over and over. And understand, when we read this, you kind of get the impression sometimes, oh, this happened in two days, and three days later this happened, and a week this happened. This stuff takes place over years. Years are going by here. But Joseph shows himself very well. He's very trustworthy. He has great skills. Eventually, Potiphar, great administrative skills, Potiphar puts him in charge of the whole house. All the other butlers and maids and... Groundskeepers, they're all answering to Joseph. And somebody else notices Joseph too. It's Potiphar's wife. Look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 39. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. This word come is a command. Joseph's a slave. She, this is not an ask. 
She is telling Joseph, you're going to come and sleep with me. So th th this is a command. And you're a slave in ancient cultures. You didn't say no. You, you didn't dare say no. I mean, she could have him killed for saying no. But he has the audacity to say, no, I'm not going to do what you require of me. And this, and this is kind of amazing. He says, look, lady, your husband has put me in charge of everything. How can I do this to him? Verse 9, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? To which we might think, God? You mean the God who hasn't seemed to have done anything for you lately? You mean the God who watched as you were sold into slavery for who knows what? You mean the God who didn't intercede, who did not come to your rescue? That God is the God that you're going to continue to serve, Joseph? And with Joseph, it's like, absolutely, that is the God I'm going to serve. And he basically, when he says, how can I do such, do this sin against God? He's kind of almost like telling Potiphar's wife that this is a sin. This is wrong. And she continues to pester him. And this goes on day after day or whatever. And, and he keeps saying, no, 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 I'm not going to do this. And eventually, I don't know if it's because she felt guilt or because she was like, I'm, I'm going to show you who's boss. She accuses him of rape. And when Potiphar finds out, he has no options. Whether he believes his wife or not, we don't know. But he doesn't have any options, really. He's got to do something. This is a bad example for the, the entire household and all the other people that are working for him if he doesn't do something. So he takes Joseph and he puts him into prison. A better translation was, would basically be he put him in a dungeon where the king's prisoners were. Verse 20, Joseph's master Potiphar put him in prison or a dungeon, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But here's that term again. But while Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him. And again, it's like, no, no, no. If God was with Joseph, Potiphar's wife would be in prison. She's the one that lied. But instead, it's Joseph. And again, we're like, aren't good things supposed to happen to good people? Aren't bad things supposed to happen to bad people? If you're faithful, aren't things supposed to work out? Verse 21 says, And God, he granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Can I ask you a question? Who wants to have favor in the eyes of the prison warden? Because doesn't that mean you're in prison, right? I mean, is that what you want? Because you're in prison? I mean, this is where Joseph finds him. Most of us, we don't want a relationship with a prison warden, at least not if, not if we're in prison. But this reminds us of something that we all need to be reminded of once in a while. This is the second point this morning. That bad things have been happening to good people for a long time. Bad things have been happening to good people for a long time. And the corollary, corollary to that is God has been with good people in bad times for a long time as well.
God has been with good people in bad times for a long time as well. So eventually, Joseph, his administrative skills seem to come to the top again. And so he's built this relationship and he's gained favor with the warden. And, and things are going good and, and as good as they can go. I mean, he's in a dungeon, right? How good can it be? And, you know, probably he hardly ever even sees the light of day but because most likely this dungeon is in the ground. But eventually the narrative continues and we learn that Pharaoh's baker and Pharaoh's butler have been put into prison too. There was some kind of tiff-taff and, and, and they're put into prison and they have these vivid dreams. And again, remember, years are going by here, but they have these vivid dreams. and They're not like your run-of-the-mill dreams, and, and they think there's something significant to them. And they know Joseph, and, and they ask Joseph, and Joseph, you know, can you tell us what these dreams mean? Joseph's like, well, give me a try. You know, I've, I've had some experience interpreting dreams. And so they begin to tell him his, their dreams. And the butler says, well, I had this dream, and he gives the details of the dream. And, and Joseph said, hey, I've got some good news. Said, in three days, on Pharaoh's birthday, he's going to lift your head up and he's going to restore you in your rightful place. And you're going to be the butler again and the, and the chief wine tester. This is, this is like great news. And then the baker kind of gets his hopes up. And, you know, he hears this great story and the great results for the butler. And so he begins to tell his story. And you have to admire Joseph's honesty here. In two, two areas first, after he tells the butler that he's going to be placed back where he was, he said, look, would you, would you remember me when you get back to Pharaoh? And when the opportunity comes, would you remember me? I've been put here unjustly. I was, I was sold into slavery. I've been taken from my home. Now I'm in prison unjustly because this, this lady lied about me. Would you remember me? And then the second area of honesty we see, just bluntly honest, is when he begins to talk to the baker. And he said, yeah, in three days, your head's going to be lifted up too, off your body. Not such good news. He says, you're going to be impaled on a stake and the birds are going to eat your flesh. And sure enough, three days later, that's exactly what happens. And I don't know why he was so blind. I mean, you think, why didn't you just tell him, well, I don't know, we'll see, if, you know, whatever. But apparently he felt the need to tell the baker exactly what was going to happen. So the years start going by. And day after day, Joseph just continues to live as if God is with him. He's 30 years old, we're told, when Pharaoh has a dream. And he can't find anybody to interpret it. So the butler, he finally remembers Joseph. And just think about this. Don't you know after the butler was restated that the days would go by and every day Joseph was just hoping, maybe today the butler will remember me. Maybe today will be the day. And 10 o'clock in the evening rolls around and goes, maybe it'll be tomorrow the butler will remember me. And another day goes and another week goes. Maybe, maybe next Monday the butler will finally remember me. We don't know how long went by, but an extended period of time goes by. So finally, there's an opportunity, and the butler remembers Joseph. And, you know, maybe the butler comes into Pharaoh, and he's like, Hey, you remember a few years ago, we kind of had this little tiff thing, and you put me in prison, and it's okay. I'm all right with that. You know, I'm back out now, and we just had this little thing that, you know, it's okay. 
But there was this guy, his name was Joseph, and he interpreted my dream. And maybe you ought to talk to Joseph. And so, you know, they had to get Joseph ready and probably had to have a haircut and a shower because I'm sure he smelled like a dungeon. And they had to talk about etiquette. This is how close you can get to Pharaoh. This is how you kneel before Pharaoh. This is what you can say to Pharaoh. And they just kind of go through all this stuff. And finally, they bring Joseph to Pharaoh. And this is what it says. Chapter 41 now, verse 15. Pharaoh says, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you could interpret it. So here's Joseph's big chance. All right? Finally, he can get out of the dungeon. Here's his big opportunity. He can interpret the dream. He's standing in front of the most powerful man on the planet. And in verse 16, this is what he said. I cannot do it. What? And you know what the butler was thinking? Ro-ro, why did I get myself in the middle of this? Why did I recommend this guy? Now I'm going to be in trouble. Why didn't I just stay out of this? And Joseph's got the opportunity. He says, I cannot do it. But he didn't even stop there. Maybe, maybe it would have been okay. He said, look, I can't do this. It goes back to the dungeon. But he doesn't even stop there. He said, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Now, here's what he's doing. Pharaoh was thought of as God with a big G. And so what is Joseph saying when he says God will give you the answer he desires? Talking about God. He's basically telling Pharaoh, you're not God. Or you're God with a little G. He's saying this to the most powerful man in the world that can have him impaled, killed at a moment's notice. No, I cannot do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he deserves. Wow. That's full of bravery, isn't it? And courage. Well, Pharaoh, for some reason, doesn't really get upset. And you may remember this in church. So Pharaoh begins to tell his dreams, and then Joseph interprets it. He says, look, here's what's going to happen, Pharaoh. For seven years, there's going to be plenty. I mean... Grain is going to grow like crazy. You're going to have such an abundance of grain that the prices are just going to plummet. I mean, there's going to be grain everywhere. And he said that after the seven years of plenty, there's going to be seven years of famine. And everybody's quickly going to forget about the abundance of grain that there was. And things are going to be really, really bad. That's what's going to happen, Pharaoh. And then Joseph does something else courageous that nobody else would do. It's like he kind of leans in, and Pharaoh, look, and he starts giving Pharaoh advice. Nobody gives Pharaoh advice if he doesn't ask for it. Verse 33 of chapter 41, and now let Pharaoh, this is Joseph talking, look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. And I can imagine all the other people that were in that room, all the officials just kind of groaned. You know, this kid still smells like the dungeon, and he's telling Pharaoh what to do. Pharaoh, here's what you ought to do. And then he starts telling what he ought to do. He says, you need to find somebody, and you need to put them in charge. And he said, what you need to do is for the next seven years, you need to tax the people one-fifth of all their grain. 
or basically 20%. You need to get 20%. He said, people are going to be making so much money, they're not even going to care. Because it's just going to be such an abundance. He said, so you need to get that 20%. And then he said, at the end of those seven years, when the famine comes, then you can start selling it back to people. You're going to make money hand over foot. You're going you're to make all kinds of money. People are going to be trading their cattle and everything else for grain. That's what you need to do. The Pharaoh was like, okay, I, 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 I get this. But where are we going to find this guy? So in verse 38, Pharaoh asked him, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom the spirit of God is the spirit of God? You know, when Pharaoh asked a question that kind of telegraphs the answer, kind of gets everybody's attention. So verse 39, since God has made all of this known to you, talking to Joseph, not only what's going to happen, but what we should do about it. There is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace. And can you imagine if you were the prime minister of agriculture for Egypt at that time? Or you were some other important minister of something? What are you doing? They're not saying it. But don't you know, what are you doing? This boy who you met two hours ago, you're, gonna make, you're making him prime minister of Egypt? You know they thought Pharaoh has lost his mind. But Joseph's in charge. And Joseph gets to work, and he's got this, he's gifted administratively. And he begins to set up cities, and, or places in cities, granaries, and they begin to bring the grain. And for seven years, they just start collecting it. And sure enough, after seven years, famine hits. And then they start selling the grain, and they start, you know, selling it for cattle, for whatever. And they just begin to sell it. And then we read this in chapter 42. And it's kind of funny if you, if you listen to it. We begin chapter 42. We're back with Jacob and his ten sons, eleven sons, count Benjamin. And this is what we read. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, I love this line. Why do you keep looking at each other? Why do you keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. So this famine has stretched all the way to them. And he's like, why are you guys standing around? Do I have to do everything for you boys? Come on, we're starving to death. Get down there and get us some grain. So they leave Benjamin and dad at home and they go down to Egypt. And they just happened that particular day that Joseph happened to be at whatever city they went to supervising the distribution of the grain that day. And they don't recognize Joseph. You know why they don't recognize Joseph? Because he's probably 37 years old, thereabouts now. They haven't seen him since he was 17, maybe a scrawny teenager. People change a lot. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. Now, what's he going to do? Here he is. Maybe it's the question that all of us struggle with at some point, or maybe you're wrestling with. What do you do? This is the third thing today. What do you do when you have the power and your words determine the destiny of your family? What happens when things turn around? What happens when what goes around comes around? 
What happens when you have the power with your words to determine the destiny of your enemy? And the answer to that question depends on what you did with your bitterness and your anger. If you are still dragging around your bitterness, if you are still carrying around that sack of anger, then the chances are pretty good you're going to do exactly what the people that you don't like did to you. And as these boys bowed down, these brothers of his bowed down before him, can you imagine the things that might be going through his head? Those nights when he was set off to the side somewhere as that caravan of Ishmaelites was traveling to Egypt, and they're all gathered around the campfire laughing, and he has no idea what's going to happen to him, what's going to become of him. Or maybe he's thinking about all the prayers that were never answered. Or maybe it's flashing through his mind, standing on an auction block, stripped naked, a human being stripped naked, and they're poking and prodding and looking at him from every angle like you would look at a cow from an auction, at an auction, a livestock auction, trying to figure, figure out what he might can do and what he might be worth. Or maybe he's thinking about Potiphar's wife who lied and had him thrown into a dungeon. All of those thoughts and before him, right at this moment, stood the men that were responsible for all of that. What's he going to do? If you read the next three chapters, there's just this series of, he just toys with them, basically. He gives them grain, and then he accuses them of being spies. He has them leave their brother, this, that, and the other thing. And then finally... They come back again, and, and Joseph just decides at this particular time, he's going to finally let them know who he is. And he has everyone leave his presence. And you know, I'm sure his brothers are thinking, what, what do we do? Why do we deserve this special attention? Oh, no. What, what is the deal? Why don't this, what did this guy just sell us the grain and leave us alone? And there's no one in the room? Now, that question. He has the power with his words to determine the destiny of his ten brothers. And he'd been waiting for this moment. Scripture tells us, he said, I am Joseph. And they waited themselves. Actually, he doesn't say that. <laughs> Their bowels released. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> but I'm sure maybe it, can, maybe it did happen. I don't know. You know, with one word, Joseph could have he was a bitter person, an angry person. He could have taken him out of the courtyard and impaled. And not to be too graphic this morning, but the way that worked, there's a stake run up through the middle. Your feet can't touch the ground. It's a slow, agonizing death. People usually die because they would fix it, so eventually the stake would reach your heart and it moved around or whatever. And they didn't do all ten people at once. They would do one brother and the other nine would watch. Then they do the second brother while the other ones watched, and that could take days. All they had to do was say a word, and that's what would happen. But that's not what happened. 
Joseph lived as, as God was with him during the absence, and he kept bitterness at bay. You know, Joseph had no idea that the 12 tribes of Joseph, the 12 tribes of Israel were coming from him and his brothers, and that the Savior of the world was going to come from that group, that, that tribe. So Joseph did exactly what ultimately our Savior did for us. The Savior of the world forgives us when we believe that he died on the cross for our sins and we ask for that forgiveness and the fact that he rose from the grave again. And Joseph practiced that forgiveness because he didn't carry around a bag of bitterness and a sack of anger, even though he had every reason in the world Here's what he said. He said, you go home. Kind words he uses. You go home. You get your kids. And you get your grandchildren. And you get my dad and my little brother. He said, you bring all the pictures and the mementos. I want to catch up. I want to know everything. Go. Come back. And so that's exactly what happened. And he promises them that he'll take care of them for the rest of their life. And then we read in chapter 50 that, that Jacob passes away. And now the brothers are frightened again because they're thinking, you know what? The only reason he kept us alive was for his dad. He didn't want to hurt our dad. And now dad's gone. He's got no reason. He can, he, he can hold it. If he's held a grudge, he can get us now. And we read in chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? And they threw themselves down. They said, spare our lives and we will just be your slaves. And Joseph says, and this is so powerful, do not be afraid. And here's the question you're going to have to ask yourself at some point in your life. He says, am I, Joseph says, in the place of God? He doesn't say, am I God? He says, am I in the place of God? In other words, am I going to judge? Am I going to do what God can do? Am I in the place of God? You will never experience the good that comes from the bad unless you recognize God was with you during the bad and then you refuse to play God when things are good. Joseph said, you intended to harm me, but God was bigger than that. You're not my slaves, he reassured them. Here's the thing. One day, and maybe it'll be soon, you might have the power over the person who took from you, who stole from you, who harmed you, who stole your first marriage, who stole your childhood, who abandoned you, who stole the opportunity, who took your children from you. You don't know when it's going to come around, but you're going to remember what they did for you or to you. And at that moment, your heavenly father is going to invite you to remember something else as well. He's going to ask you to remember who was with you. And what do you do when you have the power 
to control the destiny of your enemy. When you can pay them back or you can use kind words to pave the way forward. And your decision will not be because of what is happening at that point in your life. Your decision will be determined by what you're doing now and in between that time with your bitterness and your anger. Not that moment, but what you're doing with it now and up until that point when you have the opportunity to use your words to control the destiny of someone that's hurt you. And I hope you'll take the cue from the one who gave his life for you, not from the ones who took things from you, not from the ones who abandoned you. And if you do that in that moment, it will be like